Exodus chapter 2, from verse 11 to 25. As we were saying earlier, it's a section that should bring us uh, all a great deal of encouragement tonight, uh, because it's a reminder that God often uses people uh, despite their failures. In fact, it's true of all of us. All of us uh, fail in different ways. Uh, It's a reminder that God is in no hurry uh, to produce the the character necessary in people for leadership. Uh, uh, Moses commits murder. We're going to look at the exact implications of his act uh, later, but the conclusion will be that uh, there's no getting away from his blameworthiness in it all. Uh, But Moses' system failure in Egypt is ultimately used of God to prepare him to become Israel's greatest leader. He was a man with a big failure. The Bible never glosses over the failures of uh, the leaders in uh, the history of God's people. And so Noah, uh, after he emerges from the ark, after this great deliverance, what does he do? He goes and gets drunk, disgraces himself. Abraham twice lies, but his wife Uh, Through fear, Uh, he impulsively seeks to do God's work in his own way by fathering a child through uh, Hagar. Samson uh, is a womanizer, uh, someone who has an unpredictable temper. David is an adulterer and a murderer. Uh, Peter's commitment, and you come to the New Testament, Peter's commitment fails at the, the critical moment. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, a great persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. So on. In God's sovereignty, failure is not final. Failure, when it's acknowledged and repented of, can be used to instill God's lessons into our lives in order that we might go on to serve him more fully. Well, the story of Moses' life moves on rapidly. We know uh, it's from the account that Stephen gives us uh, in his speech in Acts 7 that Moses is aged 40 when he kills the Egyptian slave driver. Forty years have elapsed uh, since the first part of the chapter. Forty years during which Uh, Moses receives a first-class education. Stephen says he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and diction. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records two things in relation to this period of uh, Moses' life, over which we have no biblical record. Uh, He says that Uh, it was the intention of the Egyptian pharaoh to have Moses as his successor. Uh, Now, that may or may not be the case. Uh, The other great source of information, uh, Disney, uh, in the Prince of Egypt, has another uh, prince in the palace. But, uh, you know, Josephus is probably a more uh, historical source uh, for information. Uh, 
it would seem strange for Pharaoh to seek to kill Moses if he was the only heir, and we're told that uh, Moses flees because Pharaoh wanted to kill him. That may simply be uh, a reflection of the unpredictability, of the, the fickleness of Pharaoh uh, as an individual. The other claim that Josephus makes is that Moses gained great honor in Egypt by heading up a war party that invaded Ethiopia, the successful military mission. Whether or not these claims made by the secular uh, historian are correct or not, this Jewish historian are correct or not, Moses had a life of privilege. He was brought up in a royal palace. Uh, Egypt was always there or thereabouts as a superpower in the world stage. It, its influence waxed and waned, but it was a big player on the world stage. And Moses has the benefit of uh, privilege and of a first-class education. And so it was a significant matter for Moses to turn his back on these things and to identify with the downtrodden people of God, the Hebrews. So let's glean uh, together lessons from, from this section as we think, first of all, of the frailty of God's servant, frailty of God's servant, the formation of God's servant, and then finally, the faithfulness of God's promises, the frailty of God's servant, the formation of God's servant, and the faithfulness of God's promises. Moses, prince of Egypt, is 40 years old, and he goes out to view the conditions of his people. And the narrative communicates uh, the movement of Moses away from his security to embrace the misery of his people. Uh, he went out, he watched, he saw, verse 11, he went out, he saw, verse 13. Now these verses, this, this moving out, this observing, this cleaving to this people, they mark a, a very important turning point in Moses' life for the good. We see him identifying strongly with his own people. In fact, uh, notice that the expression, his own people, is repeated. It's a strong expression, isn't it? His own people. Not the Hebrew people, his own people. And it's repeated for us. Here is a man with a great future, in worldly terms, ahead of him. Uh, he has been brought up according to Egyptian customs. He's versed in Egyptian language and history. And he looks upon these careworn emaciated, downtrodden people. My people. These are my people. And there's a huge emotional bonding taking place here. When it's said that he watched them at their hard labor, the word watch uh, is more than simply uh, looking at something in a kind of cursory way. Uh, what it means is to watch with emotion. The same word that's used in the story of Hagar when uh, she feared that her boy was about to starve to death. And she says, I cannot watch 
the boy die. I cannot watch with emotion. Moses is going out and he's watching with emotion the harsh treatment of the people he now uh, speaks of as his own people. And when Moses saw the Hebrews at work, and Moses thought, these are my people. When Moses' heart churned within him with compassion and indignation against the, oppress against the oppressor, Moses has already made his choice. He sees Egypt and the palace on one side, and he sees the people of God groaning under the weight of slavery on the other side. And he's already in his heart decided, I'm on this side. I'm with the people of God. And his slaying of the Egyptian is merely to seal that decision. Once it became known, it triggered a chain of events which made his separation from the palace of Pharaoh inevitable. But cho the, the choice had already been made. It was a choice of the heart. He saw his people. And this is hugely important, a hugely important moment for Moses. And it's what caused the writer to the Hebrews to, to pen these words. By faith, Moses when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. It's a wonderful verse. Uh, it, it, it communicates the, the latent greatness of Moses. And why does it do that? Because it's pointing us to Christ. This is the spirit of our Saviour. Uh, this is the movement, this is the, the direction of, of Jesus' travel. Uh, Moses, in identifying and bonding with his people, is foreshadowing the one who would come from the heights of glory, the ivory palaces, into a world of sin. Jesus turns his back on a much greater home than Moses ever did. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 and 7, who being in the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being found in human likeness. And Jesus' ministry is based on his determination to identify with the people. We see that strikingly when uh, in, in that, that picture that we have of his baptism at the Jordan. Jesus making his way through the, the crowds of the, the, the small petty thieves and the adulterers and the extortioners and the self-righteous people and submitting to John's baptism, identifying with his people. We see it uh, in the way that the, the Pharisees, his, his religious opponents, characterized him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And of course they, they meant it as a point of derision. Jesus wore it as a badge of honor. He was a friend of tax collectors 
and sinners. And they are supremely, we see it in the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus identifying with sinners on the cross. And then we see it uh, in every worship service that we have. Uh, when we have the Lord Jesus coming into our midst, the same writer, the writer to the Hebrews, says that uh, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He identifies with his people. Now, let's tease that out a little bit more, this, this identifying of, of Moses with his people, which is such a, a Christ-like act. All of us, if we would do the people around us good, must identify with them in a right way. If I'm going to be a gospel preacher in Coatbridge, I need to love the people of Coatbridge. You cannot proclaim the gospel to a people that you don't care for. And all of us, in, in seeking to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, we have to have that sense of identifying, a sense of, of love and compassion. And again, there is a challenge to every Christian to come out of the closet for Jesus. This is what was taking place in Moses' life. His actions that day made it quite clear where his sympathy lay. Uh, he chose to stand with the people of God. And that famous verse from, uh, from Hebrews puts it in its eternal perspective. To live as the world's most wealthy and powerful man cannot compare to eternal riches in glory. Moses chose to turn his back on the pleasures of sin, which are just for a while. And to stand with the people of God that he might inherit an eternal reward. In Moses' mind, it was a no-brainer. And therefore, he stood up for the Lord and his people. Now, for all of us who are Christians, that's something that we cannot avoid doing. We cannot avoid identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be a time in our lives when uh, we are no longer uh, secret believers, quiet believers. Uh, the Nicodemuses of the world who come to Jesus by night must, in the end of the day, stand up and be counted. And so the question uh, that the passage poses to each one of us Am I recognizably on the Lord's side where God has placed me? Uh, in my family circle, am I known as a Christian? Uh, in, uh, in school, in university, in the workplace, do my workmates know that I am a Christian? Is it clear, is it inescapable knowledge that I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Because discipleship ultimately always leads to an openness of whom it is we serve. Moses uh, took that step. It was a, a burning of the bridges, as it were, a 
crossing of the Rubicon. There was no turning back. He had identified with the people of God. He had turned his back on the pleasures of sin, on the palaces of Egypt. He was one of God's people. And so we see this latent greatness in Moses. But then, of course, there were very obvious uh, aspects in which Moses was far from the finished article. Uh, some have defended Moses' action in slaying the Egyptian. In fact, John Calvin is one of those uh, who did. And when Calvin uh, says something, you sit up and take notice. Uh, most commentators uh, are of the opinion, however, that Moses was in the wrong and that it was an act of murder. Calvin's uh, argument is that when Moses slew the Egyptian, he was acting as God's representative and God would later drown the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Uh, of course, uh, there's a sense in which Moses hadn't been called to this task at this point. Um, and most commentators see the, the wilderness period of Moses as necessary to the smoothing out of some of the, the, the blemishes in Moses' character, which are evidenced by the, the rash act of slaying the Egyptian. Stephen, in his speech, says, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. So Stephen is saying that Moses is thinking that by smiting the Egyptian, he will trigger a revolution. The people will recognize him as a leader. They will rise up and follow him. But he miscalculated. They did not. Moses' act reveals uh, his need for spiritual formation in, in a number of ways. First, it shows that uh, he was inclined at this point to zeal without wisdom. Now, it's a good thing to be angry against injustice. Probably something which is lacking amongst Christians. Uh, we ought to burn with indignation against some of the atrocities that are done in this world, not least against our own brothers and sisters in Christ. But Moses acts hastily and unwisely. We're told uh, in the manner of his acting, glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him. Uh, there would have been no way for this shady dealing if Moses had been acting honorably. And sometimes we can have good motivation, but we end up uh, doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing in the wrong way because we have zeal without wisdom. So, for example, you could commit uh, yourself to a, a course of Christian action, but you're unable to follow through because of age or circumstances or commitments, and then end up pulling back. Zeal without wisdom. Or, say, a Christian may write a letter to the press about some anti-Christian aspect of today's society. Speaking up, but may do that in a way that's unwise and inflammatory and actually ends up hindering the witness of the church. And Moses has 40 years in Midian to cool his heels and learn wisdom with zeal. He needs to learn it if 
He's going to be God's servant. It will be God's work done in God's way, in God's timing. God hadn't told him at this point to trigger a revolt of slaves by killing the Egyptian. Uh, it's a, an act that's very re reminiscent of Peter's cutting off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Malchus was actually very lucky to escape uh, with his head intact, because I'm sure it was more than the ear that Peter intended removing. And it was a hasty action, and Peter's rebuked for it. And like Moses, we can sometimes feel we can take matters into our own hands, and we can trigger the much-needed revival that our land needs. But if God's work is not done in God's way, in God's time, then our best intentions backfire. Now, of course, it's not always easy to, to recognize uh, God's way and God's timing. That is a problem. It takes wisdom. And wisdom, as we were saying earlier, takes experience. And experience involves us making bad decisions as well as right decisions. Moses was going to be given time to develop uh, wisdom. And so we see, secondly, the formation of God's servant, Moses. Uh, his flight to uh, Midian is triggered by the realization that he doesn't have his fellow Hebrews on side. The next day, when he intervenes in a struggle between two of the people, uh, they respond, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Now, that must have stung Moses. Can you imagine? This is, this is a ruler and judge in Egypt. He's speaking to people, the very people he recognizes as my own people. And the response is, who made you a ruler and judge over us? He may have been a ruler in Egypt, but he didn't have the support of his own people. And one of the first lessons uh, that we learn in leadership is that if no one's following you, you're not leading. Whatever else you think you're doing, if no one's following you, you're not leading. Nobody was following Moses. And at this point, he realizes that despite his efforts to kind of cover up, uh, what he had done must be widely known. Indeed, Pharaoh gets to hear of it. Pharaoh tries to kill him. And so Moses flees to Midian. And there in Midian, interestingly, he comes across another case of injustice. Some women are being bullied by uh, other male shepherds so that they're unable to water their flocks when they would like and Moses' spirit, uh, his, his desire to champion justice, to stand up for the downtrodden, has obviously not been quenched by his experience in Egypt. And he stands up against uh, the bully shepherds uh, so that the, the, the women, the sisters, are able to water their flocks. And the girls go back uh, and they tell Ruel, or, or Jethro, as he'll be called sometimes, uh, what had happened. Jethro is obviously surprised that they're back early because they were, this was obviously a routine happening that these other shepherds would, would prevent them watering their flocks at the right time. And so uh, it's, quite, it's quite funny, uh, Ruel uh, saying, what do you mean? What, why did you not ask them home? You mean you didn't ask them back for hospitality? Ruel has his own agenda. He has seven daughters and if you've got seven daughters in the house, you don't wait for any opportunity to, to match them off with somebody else. So Moses is invited into the home, and with 
a great economy of words, we learn that rules, designs pay off because we read that one of the daughters, Zipporah, ends up getting married to Moses. And Moses stays around and they raise a family. And as we discover later, he is there for 40 years. 40 years. Being a husband. Being a father. Being a shepherd. Quite a distance, isn't it, from the, the splendor of the, the, the palace uh, in Egypt. D.L. Moody, the American evangelist, uh, wrote about uh, God's dealings uh, in the 40-year periods of Moses' life. He said, Moses spent his, fort, his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was a nobody. He spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Well, I would go along uh, to an extent with, uh, with what he says, uh, except to say that uh, becoming a shepherd was not becoming a nobody for Moses. Moses was fulfilling a productive, a socially useful task when he tended Jethro's sheep. All of our callings, whatever we do with our hands, uh, are honorable when are done unto the Lord. And not only that, but shepherding as a calling is something which God has signally used in the formation of uh, those that would lead his people. We can think of a, a number of people in the Bible who were shepherds, some in a big way, some in a smaller way. Abraham, David, Amos, many, many more. But in Joseph's case, there certainly was a huge social adjustment. When we think of the attitude that Egyptians had towards sheep and shepherds, uh, because we are told uh, at the end of Genesis that Joseph manages to find them land in Goshen, away from the main centers of population, because his brothers were shepherds, and shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. They thought they were riffraff. And so this was a huge move for Moses, uh, to move from the palace to becoming a shepherd. God doing in Moses' life? How was God shaping Moses in these 40 years? Well, I believe that the chief work that God did in Moses' life in that period was to make Moses a humble man. It was to instill the greatest humility in the greatest leader of the people of Israel. There's a key verse, Numbers 12, verse 3, we read, Now Moses was a very humble man, humbler than anyone else on the face of the earth. Moses, formerly prince of Egypt, was more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. Now that humility, the formation of that humility was not an instant matter. It took 40 years in Midian, a period of time when he learned to think of himself less, because he had lots of sheep to look after, and he had a wife, and he had kids. C.S. Lewis uh, once helpfully wrote about humility. He said, humility 
is not thinking less of yourself, but is thinking of yourself less. Get that? Humility is not that we uh, take on a, a false disregard for the gifts and abilities that God has given to us. It simply means that we're not thinking about ourselves as much as we used to. Because we're thinking more about the Lord and about other people. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, there were, of course, other things that Moses learned in his 40 years in Midian. He learned what it was to be an exile. Moses had a complex identity. It's quite interesting. You know, the, the, the sisters go back to their father and they say they've met an Egyptian. I wonder, how would Moses have identified? He was always a man, as it were, out of place, not at home in the palace amongst the Egyptians, though, they, though he had been born there and raised there. And when Zipporah gives birth to a son, Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. This would be another essential ingredient in Moses identifying with the people who would learn to think of themselves as exiles. People who had a home that God had promised them, but to which they had not yet entered. So he would learn this. He would learn what it was to be an exile. He would learn to identify with his people. But again, above all else, it was humility that Moses learned. This was the characteristic God is polishing into Moses during these years of obscurity. Now, when you think about it, that is so contrary to, to human ways of thinking, isn't it? You know, if you were, if, if you were to ask somebody uh, who wasn't a believer uh, what it might have been that uh, uh, would have been necessary in the preparation of a great world leader, no one's going to come up with humility unless they're a Christian, unless they know something of the ways of God. But for every Christian, for every disciple, this is the one quality that's needful. It's the one quality that Jesus drew attention to in his own life. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Learn of me, out there in the plains of Midian, being a good shepherd, taking good care of his sheep, working with his hands, submitting to God's providence, raising a family. Moses was learning the humility that would equip him for servant leadership in the household of God. And maybe for some of us, that's what God has in our lives at the present time. You know how we can become impatient and want to move on. And God has other designs. And one of the, one of the things that God may be seeking to work into your life, in your circumstances, is this jewel of humility. It was so important in Moses' case that God spent 40 years polishing Moses so that it would be said one day of Moses, there's no one in the whole wide world who is more humble than Moses. Lastly, and very briefly, the faithfulness of, of God 
we must switch back. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, <coughs> meanwhile, back in Egypt, God is on the move. And we're reminded that he is a God who is not remote and distant from the trials of his people. Verses 24 and 25 uh, mention God's name and his actions four times. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the sons of Israel. God took notice. Literally, God knew. Now, these are all human ways of speaking about God. Uh, he's always hearing, always remembering, always sees, knows all things at all times. But it's a way of, of reinforcing uh, the fact that uh, God is not oblivious to the sufferings of his people. And the important phrase is, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Right at the end of the chapter, there's a reminder that God had made a promise a long time ago. Hundreds of years before, God had made a promise, a covenant promise. He promised that there would be a great nation and that they would have a great land to enter. And these years have rolled on and now, by various estimates, there are maybe two million living in the land of Egypt. And they're groaning under servitude. And they're suffering all of the oppression of the, of the Egyptians, infanticide, slavery. And their future leader is a fugitive in Midian. God is working out his purposes. A wonderful close to this period of Moses' story. It's reminding us that God is not in a hurry, but he is always faithful. He's always faithful. He hears, he knows, and he will act. That's a take-home message, isn't it, for us? Especially if we feel that in some way or another, we're in God's waiting room, wondering what God is going to do. God is faithful to his covenant promise. He sees and he knows. And he is in the business of rubbing the rough, rough corners of his people. He does not abandon his people. His promises today are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your providence in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that just as you prepared a, a leader, a great leader in Moses, who had great failings and needed a great length of time to prepare him. We thank you, Lord, that you raised him up to be the man of your choosing. Help us, Lord, in our own situations to recognize your hand of love and care, to know deep within us that you are the covenant God who doesn't abandon the work of your hands, but keeps us, preserves us, and has paths of usefulness for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>